Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Such a convicting passage, isn't it? Such a convicting passage. I forgave you because you pleaded with me. James 5.16, which uh, opened our little, um, we're, what we're expanding into a two-part one another from last week to this week. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. And we wanted to pair that passage with this passage because this passage is just, it's not only rich with a willingness to forgive others, but it shows us how the people of God live in a different kingdom when it comes to confession and forgiveness and mercy than the world does. Um, and so, last Sunday we talked about how important it is to confess sin for each of us to acknowledge our sinfulness, to admit when we're wrong, to ask for forgiveness. Um, we talked about how important it is first to confess our sins to God, then to those that we've mistreated or offended, and then third, to invite other people to help us with our recurring sin struggles so that James has in mind, and we'll talk a little more about this in a few minutes, not just confessing wrongs to one another, but confessing our need um, to one another for Christ to help us and for others to help us, not, not just confessing sins that we committed to, you know, 
with one another to each other, but just confessing our sinfulness and our sin struggles to one another. James has that in mind. So we talked last, last week, and, and Pastor Allen really went after confession on a personal level, like what it looks like for you and I to pursue uh, confession and forgiveness, and what even a biblical confession sounds like, which was incredibly helpful last week. Uh, look, if I offended you, I'm sorry. I was having a bad day. That's not a good confession, is it? We, we locked, we, last week we learned the, the seven A's of confession, which we've been trying to think about all week as a family, and, and we remembered that if I offended you, um, but you don't understand my circumstances, or maybe you know, if, but, and maybe are not part of a good biblical confession, right? So I love the seven A's. Uh, we talked about it this week. We were reflecting, and we kind of went around the table at a meal and said, okay, can every, let's build the seven A's back. Can you guys help us? Can everybody remember one of the A's? And one of the A's was avoid if, but, or maybe. Another one of the A's, can you walk through these in your mind with me for just a second, was um, admit, you know, actually admit that you have have done something wrong. And here's another one. Someone brought this up. I thought it was really good. Acknowledge hurt. Like a good confession sounds like this, but an even better confession sounds like, I remember when I did this and I sensed that I hurt you. And, and then someone, uh, someone threw in the last one, which was really important, <laughs> the actual asking for forgiveness. Do you remember that was the seventh one? It was, we took six to get to that seventh one to voice when you've wronged someone asking for forgiveness and then allow time and space for repentance. So last week was so incredibly practi practical and helpful and, and it's so humbling, by the way, when your own children say that's the best sermon I've heard all year. <laughs> You're like, you know what? I, I received that. It was the best sermon I've heard all year, too. Um, so, so that was really good. It was incredibly personal and practical last week. Today, I want to talk about why confession is so good for the church as a whole. Why, why confessing our sins to one another, James 5, 16, why confessing sins to one another is so good for the whole church family. Why it's good for us as a community of believers. We are not just saved as individuals. We're saved to a community. We're saved to a, a, a new kingdom that's being formed. And the church is an outpost of that kingdom in the world. And so I want to talk a little bit about why it is so good for us as a church when we as individuals personally confess sin to one another. Four things happen to us as a church family, as a people, that are incredibly helpful. And to the degree that we continue to practice confession of sin as a habit of grace, to that degree, you and I will do our part in making the church what it's supposed to be. So when we practice sincere confession of sin, four things happen. It happens. It builds trust and solidarity. Secondly, it cultivates humility. Third, it deepens honesty and authenticity in this community. And fourth, it guarantees our identity. I want to walk through those four with you this morning. 
First of all, when we confess sins to one another, it builds trust and solidarity in the body of Christ. Something unique happens here when we confess our sins to one another. It, it builds a, a, a deep sense of trust and, and a, a solidarity between us, an identity between us. So when I confess on Tuesday morning in my one-on-one uh, uh, with pa- Pastor Michael Wu, as he and I meet and try to disciple one another and sharpen one another, when I confess to him on Tuesday mornings that I'm struggling with contentment and gratitude, whether it's in my family life or work life or my car or my stuff, or, 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 or this cultural moment or whatever it is, but as I confess to him this, that I'm struggling with contentment, we're trying to practice contentment as a spiritual discipline for this year, right? As I confess to him my struggle with contentment personally, there's a, an immediate offer of trust that's been put on the table in that moment. What will he do with that? Will he just kind of move on in a Christian sort of way? Oh, yeah. What will he do with that? Or will he, will he reciprocate that trust? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a, a, a passage so many of you know, you've memorized it uh, to fight sin. Uh, but, but, but just back up a little bit and think about what, it's, what, what just this one phrase is saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except <clears throat> what is common to man. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God will provide a way of escape. But before you get to that section, that, that, that God's way out, just grasp what he's saying there for a moment. Humanity, all of us, there's no, there's no person who does not experience the same common sin struggles. And we are all tempted, and we're all tempted all the time. Certainly in different ways, different appeals, but there's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to humanity. And when we acknowledge our shared weakness and our shared sin struggles, what happens is it starts to build a trust It creates a solidarity in our humanity with one another. Temptation is real. And sin leads to isolation. Sin will pull you away from people. So confession, one of the best ways to fight sin is to build a gospel friendship through confession that builds trust. So Michael has to decide in that moment, will he pick up the offer of trust that I put on the table about my own discontentment Or will he just leave it there? If he responds well, it will sound like this. You know, I am struggling with contentment also. Tell me more about your your struggle with this. And then he listens. And then what happens? Trust deepens between us. He asks, hey, how can we help each other practice contentment how are we going to model contentment for each other for our families and for the church how do we model this how do we how do we talk about it in a way that is is not drawing attention to ourselves but helps us to really pursue contentment as a spiritual discipline look look back to matthew 18 again and i want you to look at matthew 18 with this question in mind where's the trust and solidarity in this passage 
Because this story is a beautiful call to learn to give and receive mercy, but that's not all that it is. This is a story, look, look back up to chapter 18, back up to, back up to verses, uh, verse 17 and 18. The previous, uh, the previous paragraph, the, 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 the previous sort of vignette, Jesus is talking about the church to his apostles in Matthew 18. He's talking about the church. So then in verse 21, drop down to verse 21, Peter comes up to him and says, okay, how often in this new thing that you're making, this new kingdom you keep talking about, how often do people forgive each other? Like seven times? Kind of hoping for a low number. Maybe not. Maybe Peter's like, okay, seven sounds, that's solid. These guys come back to me five times, six. Okay, seven is solid. Jesus blows his mind. No, not seven. Seventy-seven times. Seven, seven times, seventy times. I mean, uh, the, the construction of the text, one way or the other, it means a massive amount of forgiveness is the kind of place that I'm talking about. And so he's, Jesus is not just talking about how individuals exchange grace and mercy and get forgiveness in this parable. He's talking about how the church is going to be a place where forgiveness is freely given and mercy is constantly on display. So I'm saying that because he's talking to the apostles about what this looks like. And, and then look down at verse, so, so look down at verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. He's talking to the apostles. He's talking about the kingdom. He's clearly talking about the way this new people will operate. So Jesus is laying out a new way of life for the new covenant community that's built on a willingness to forgive one another and to trust one another enough, think about this, to trust one another enough to give grace to someone and see what they will do with it. And the story that unfolds has a man who we should not be like in this new thing that Jesus is making. Verse 28, he had experienced incredible forgiveness, but in verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, uh, a subcontractor that he hired one day to help him do some work, uh, and, and, and he owed him money because he hadn't paid him back yet and seizing him he began to choke him look at this and seizing him he began to choke him and say pay me now no trust no solidarity no compassion no identifying of his I mean this is a guy that he worked with this is a guy that he trusted on the job site he doesn't put himself in his shoes he just demands that he do for him what he wants. There's no trust, there's no solidarity, there's no sense of shared life. And it's a, it's a reflection here. The way this man operates is a reflection of his complete unawareness of the mercy that's been shown to him. So, when you confess, here's what I'm trying to say, when you confess your sin struggles to one another, in this local church, in this body with each other, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm not gonna act like this man, I am gonna act like this man, the one who pleaded for mercy. 
and God granted it him, you know. Um, this is a, a beautiful reminder that when you, when you learn how to give and receive forgiveness, you're bringing to fulfillment Jesus' hope for the church. You say, what does Jesus want the church to be like? He wants it to be a place where people can plead for mercy and receive it. That's what Jesus wants the church to be like. And when you do that, you're building trust with one another and a sense of solidarity, and it's a beautiful thing. Let me show you the second thing. So when you confess your sins to one another, not only does it help you really trust and, and connect with one another, but it helps us to, in the church, cultivate a place of humility. It cultivates humility. Jesus was all the time teaching on how pride keeps us from God, right? Pride keeps us from God. Pride keeps us from confession of sin. Pride keeps us from that thing which is necessary to enter into relationship with God. Sin must be confessed to enter into a right relationship with God and toward one another. Pride keeps us from being willing to make that confession. That's what pride does. Where pride holds out, there is resistance to confess sin. Pride is not just an occasional sin, it is a root sin that keeps us from admitting our need over and over again. On the other hand, when you confess sin to one another, just what is confession of sin at its just most foundational level? It's an act of humility. When you confess sin to one another, it's an act of humility, and it weaves true humility into the fabric of church life. It beautifully weaves humility into who we are as a people. Some groups are built on toughness, right? Think of the motorcycle gang with leather jackets. They roll up to the bar, and everybody just kind of moves out of the way. Some groups are built on prestige. Think of the elite colleges and universities. Some groups are built on physical appearance. Think back to high school and how the most popular group was filled with attractive girls and attractive boys. The world builds its groups around all kinds of things. Jesus is building a group for himself that is uniquely characterized by something. What is that something? Humility something the world does not value. Jesus is building a church for himself that values true humility, true, true humility that comes through confession of sin, humility before God and humility before one another. You remember, and Jesus is all the time teaching us about this, just at a, at a base level. So much of his teaching, he's walking around, he's talking about how it is that pride keeps us from God and from one another. Think about Luke chapter 18. You remember Luke 18, two men go up to the temple to pray. Do you remember this? Two men go to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Do you remember this story? The Pharisee comes to the temple, walks right up, lifts his head toward heaven, and you could just see the pride moving toward heaven. And he says, oh God, how I thank thee that I'm, I have to throw a thee in there just to sound, I don't normally speak in the King James. I thank thee that I'm not like other men. I'm not like this 
unjust man. I'm not like this extortioner. I'm not like an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. Tax collector was not a compliment here. And he's praying and this, the way this parable unfolds. And then it says, the text says, but the tax collector wouldn't even come all the way up to the place to pray, stood afar off, did not look up, but rather just kind of, but God, why am I so sinful? Just kind of beats on his chest. Have mercy on me because I sense my sinful, needy condition before you. And then what does Jesus say? Two men went and two men went home. And which man went home from the temple that day justified before God? Not the religious man, but the man who cried out for mercy. The man who pleaded for mercy. Here's the kicker. At the end of the parable, Jesus says this. I want you to learn something. He says this over and over again. Those who exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. Those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. That's the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God reverses the values of the world. So what kind of church do you want to go to? Like, do you want to go to a church that has everything figured out? A church that thinks highly of itself? A, a church that has easy answers to political problems and social problems and personal problems? Just, you know, thinks really highly of itself. Where there's posturing and there's pretense and there's pride. There's almost an odor of self-righteousness. Nobody listens except to themselves. It becomes a religious echo chamber. I don't want to go to a church like that. You don't want to go to a church like that. Wouldn't you rather, this can happen to churches. This can easily happen to churches. Wouldn't you rather go to a church where there was a culture of humility, a culture of humbling oneself at every level? Yeah, I want to go to that church. Okay, so what can I do to make my church more like that church? You're not going to like the answer. Are you ready? Confess your sins to one another. When you confess sin to one another, again, we're not just talking about offenses that you've committed toward. We're talking about what James means in 5.16, which is to invite people into your sin struggle and when you acknowledge together how much you need the gospel, when you practice humility by confessing sin to one another, it's going to radiate out into the body. It's going to be woven into the fabric of the church life. People will follow your example and the church will change for the better. I wish my church would just change and get engaged to do something. You know, People say this all the time. Okay? Here's what you should do. Start taking seriously your sin struggles and trusting one another with them. And God will do something amazing through the gospel. When you 
have the courage to confess gossip or resentment or anger or lust or envy in a trusted relationship within this church family, you're activating the power of the gospel. Look, go back to Matthew 18 again. Stay in Matthew 18. We're just going to keep kind of popping back into Matthew 18 here. So go, go back to Matthew 18. Do you see the cold pride and absence of humility in this man? An unwillingness? Where is it? It's in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. He refused. So he's received forgiveness. He's gone to the fellow servant, subcontractor. He's asked him. Uh, you know, that guy's pleaded with him for mercy. But, but the one who just received mercy, the text says, refuses to grant mercy to someone else in need. And the contrast between the amount of forgiveness and mercy required it's just even more and more pronounced the further we get into this. Verse 30 says, he refused. I want you to understand, refusal is pride language. Why did he refuse? Because he's not really experiencing the mercy the king has shown him. He's presumed on his mercy. It was a fake plea. And we know that because when he turns around and goes out and has a chance to put it into action, there's nothing there except, verse 30, he refused to give his fellow servant mercy. You're not going to get good at extending mercy to others if you are not habitually cultivating the act of uh, humility in your own soul through the act of confession of sin. And I'm not talking about going around and beating yourself up every week. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I do? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about naming specific sins that you're struggling with week in and week out. Confession of sin is going to make our church family a better place. Like, you are asking yourself, what could I do? And you should be. Every believer in this congregation, we as a people should be asking ourselves, what can we do to make this a better place? Really simple. Well, it's not that simple. It's hard, actually. Keep practicing confession of sin toward one another. All right, here's the third thing. So not only does it cultivate humility, but third... It deepens honesty and authenticity. So one of the things the church in America is suffering from this, these days, as much as anything else, is an apparent absence of honesty and authenticity. We know this because 20-somethings and 30-somethings keep telling us this. We keep asking, and they keep telling us in survey after survey. Now, it, because we've known it so long, it's now the 30-somethings and 40-somethings that are saying it. That the church needs a renewal of honesty and authenticity. They say things like, it doesn't seem like we're allowed to bring our real problems in there and honestly deal with our doubts and our questions, and I want to be part of something real. I, I, don't, I don't need to be part of something that's not real. And this is one of the, I think, more serious and substantive observations about the church that we need, to, we need to think through. This is going to sound strange, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Would you like to see your church be more evangelistic? 
Would you like to see the church reach more people? Would you like to see the church connecting further into the community? Then, I know that this does not sound like it makes sense at all, but it, it really does. Then start confessing sin to one another. Be honest. Because what the world is watching for and can sense and people can sense this from the moment they meet us and, and the moment that they connect with us, whether it's in a coffee shop or here on the church property, people can sense whether or not there is honesty and authenticity. Now, turn to James chapter five and verse 16. I wanna show you something. So keep your hand in, keep your finger, or, or yeah, mark Matthew 18, because we're gonna come back to it in a second, but go further into the New Testament, go to James. Uh, when you get to Hebrews, you're close. You're nearby, right? Is James before or after Hebrews? Help me out. Okay, good, thank you. I'm still trying to find it here. James 5, 16. So I'm asking the question, if we wanna be a more effective church, a more evangelistic church, a more appealing church in the best sense of the word, um, we need to start confessing sin like we need forgiveness and model honesty and authenticity in our walk. James 5.16, this is what got us started into this last week. This is where Pastor Allen took us. 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. This is, this is the, the, the main text that we're kind of working out of here for the last couple weeks. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Doug Moo on this particular verse writes this, believers should be committed to confessing their sins to one another. I mean, this is, this is radical, but listen to this. He says, believers should be committed to this, to confessing their sins to one another and praying for one another. Mutual confession of sins, he goes on, mutual confession of sins, which James encourages as a habitual practice, note the present tense imperative, is greatly beneficial to the spiritual vitality of the church. Moose says, the habit of practicing confession of sin to one another is greatly beneficial to the spiritual vitality and health and life of the church. Why would that be the case? Why would it be so good for the whole church? Because confession of sin is how the church gets honest with itself. Confession of sin is how we justify our very existence as a church. It authenticates who we are. It authenticates who we are. If you only needed to confess your sins the day you got saved, and you haven't confessed any sins in the last however long, it's really a betrayal of the gospel. It's a betrayal that you don't need Christ, and that you maybe did not fully understand what was happening in salvation to begin with. About two weeks ago, Anderson and I, were, we were working uh, with some, something sharp, I think in a, some aluminum stuff we were working with, and I, I'll spare you the gory details, get that theme working this week. I'll spare you the gory details like Pastor Allen said last week, but enough of the, the end of my thumb was you know, peeled back so that my thumbprint was gone. 
So it went deep enough to get that layer out of the way. So I didn't realize this, you know, I mean, I realized it hurt, right, when it happened. So, but I didn't realize the implications of it until I went to get my phone. And I got out my phone and I went to open it up. And I put my thumb down and like, access denied, access denied. I keep trying, access denied. It wouldn't authenticate that I belong to the phone and the phone belongs to me. So then I start typing my code in again, which was good because I needed to remember my code. When, when you and I, here's what happens. When you and I confess sin as a habit, as a daily habit, we're authenticating that we belong to the church and the church belongs to us. The way to authenticate your part in the body of Christ is to not, not necessarily to walk around and say things, but rather to participate in the gospel over and over and over again, to confess your sin. And when you confess your sin, it's like you're putting your thumb on that phone and it opens up and now you're in and you can experience all the power of this, that's inside that thing, that device. Same thing happens in the church. Same thing happens to the church. When you confess sin to one another, you're authenticating that you belong to the church and you're authenticating that you can't live without the gospel and you're creating a culture in the life of the church that is incredibly honest and real and authentic. Back to Matthew 18. Look back to Matthew 18 with me. When you read this story, when this story first hits you, what was one of the things that you left with one of the most striking thoughts that you left with when you met this man who received so much mercy but couldn't give any of it out. What was one of the most striking thoughts that you had? He's a hypocrite. Did you have that thought? He's the embodiment of hypocrisy. What Jesus is doing, I want to back you up again. This, this passage, Matthew 18, is constantly thought of as an individual thing where one individual gives forgiveness to another. It's much bigger than that. Jesus is making a case. First of all, it's written in a gospel. The gospels are the rule of the church. It's the, it's the playbook for the church. The, gos, the gospels, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are, they, I mean, it's they, the life and ministry of Jesus, right? teaching us what the church should look like, so it's in a gospel, right? Remember, he's talking to the apostles, he's talking kingdom, he's been talking about church, he's definitely talking about something more than just individuals. He's talking about the way the kingdom ought to operate in the church. Jesus is teaching us that when we confess our sins to one another, when we learn to traffic in mercy and forgiveness, not judgment, not demands, not refusal. When we learn to traffic in that kind of kingdom, man, it's so good for the, for, for the church. When we practice confessing and, and giving and receiving mercy, it really genuinely authenticates who we are and what we're supposed to be about. Like it just keeps bringing us back to the gospel. And then here's my last point. Confessing your sins to one another guarantees our identity, and I'm really just kind of started into that with my, with my last illustration. It just guarantees our, what I mean by that is it, it keeps us focused on the mission. It guarantees our purpose. It guarantees our identity. It, it guarantees that, so when we're in the habit of confessing sins to one another, 
not just as individuals, but as a church, when we personally confess sin struggles, when we, when we make our lives an open place and we fight for one another and not with one another, when we do all these things with other trusted members of this fellowship, it's, it's kind of guaranteeing we're doing what we're supposed to do as a church. Because you know, churches can do a thousand different things. Church history is, is riddled with churches that got distracted. Churches can do a thousand different things. In fact, there are a lot of things we could stop doing here at the cave and still be the church. We've learned that in recent months, haven't we? There's a lot of things we could stop doing. Here's one thing we can never stop doing. Here's one thing that guarantees our identity. We can never stop being the place where people discover forgiveness and mercy, or we're out of business. Game over. When we stop being the place where people can discover mercy and forgiveness, just shut the doors and it's over. So how can you, as a member of the body, Help us guarantee our mission. Well, come to the right committee meeting. Uh, be part of this group. Be part. No, 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 no. The way you guarantee the mission of this church and its existence is to practice what James has called us to in 516. Practice confession. Practice act like you still need it. Act like you still need God's mercy. This is the thing that the guy in the story does not understand. He gets what he came for, Bill paid, and then he leaves and no mercy goes with him. What a tragic moment. It'd be horrible for you to think you got your sins paid for. Listen. To think you got the bill paid and then to turn around, walk out, and bump into an inability, a refusal to grant mercy to other people. And then hear Jesus say at the end of this story. Should not you have had mercy on someone else as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he would pay all of his debt, which, by the way, would never, ever, ever happen. Billions of dollars worth of debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. How am I going to make sure that I'm ready to forgive my brother? Are you ready for this? It's really simple. Again, I, it's not a new idea. You're going to know the answer to this because that's what we're, we're trying to do here. How am I going to make myself ready to forgive my brother in that moment? I need to be in the habit and practice of doing what? Confessing sin to one another. Not a laundry list of woe is me, not gossip session, not but just true humility. Will you help me fight this sin struggle as we walk together in the body of Christ? So I want to pray for us this morning.
that God would weave this into deeper. It's here. Uh, please do not hear that. It is, it, is, it is a part of our body. It is presently here, but we want to press it deeper in to the core of who we are. All right? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. God, it is so arresting just to hear these words. So, Lord, we pray this morning that before we would try to grant forgiveness to someone else, we would have the integrity, the gospel integrity to cry out and say, really without even being willing to look fully up to heaven, to, but to beat on our chest like the tax collector and say, God, have mercy on me, how I need your mercy. Teach us the value of being part of a church, a kingdom that loves to give and receive mercy, we pray in Christ's name. Let's sing about it.